This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator Podcast and Neonatology Review. It is Wednesday. We're blazing through GI. What's going on, Daphne? No, I'm having fun. <laughs> um, you are away on vacation this week. People don't know that. That's right. That's right. I feel very fortunate uh, to be visiting family down here in Argentina. I'm hoping to stop by the uh, NICU down here, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> All right. Get us some. Uh, we're 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 making. There's um, actually this is actually interesting. You mentioning this. There's going to be some major changes happening to the Spanish version of the podcast. Our med students mm-hmm. have done a phenomenal job, but we're having two rock stars who are coming on to uh, take over the podcast and and start mm-hmm. mentoring our med students. So that's going to be fun. Stay tuned for that. Please let them know in uh, Buenos Aires that. Uh, it's coming mm-hmm. you're going to Buena- you're in Buenos Aires right that's right that's oh. right okay um the next topic we're talking about is meconium ileus what the heck is meconium ileus <laughs> well meconium is meconium ileus it means that it's really not moving so um these are these nasty plugs right that we uh that can potentially cause a bowel obstruction so 10 to 50 percent of patients with cystic fibrosis have meconium ileus. Okay. So that's okay. So about 10 to 15% of patients with CF will have meconium ileus. But what's interesting is that 90% of the patients with meconium ileus have CF. So if you have yeah. CF, you may not get meconium ileus. But if you have meconium ileus, you better do that sweat test. Yeah, so Good luck with that. It's always a problem to get a sweat test that's in the NICU. Right. It's always so complicated. Yeah, it's like one of the, it's in medical school, when they teach you the sweat test, you're like, ah, finally yeah. something easy. Sounds like <laughs> sounds like something I could do myself. And then you get to the NICU and they're like, oh boy, they want a sweat test on a baby. That's <laughs> good. Can this just be done as an outpatient? Can you move the baby to the outpatient building? That's it. The All baby right. has to be bigger. The baby has to be older. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're talking about a distal ileum obstruction. It's caused by hyperviscous secretions from the mucous gland of the small intestine. Meconium with decreased water will adhere to the intestinal lining and will basically create like a cast of the intestine and will just block the passage of stool through the intestine. The symptoms are usually pretty quick within the first 24 to 48 hours. Um, You will have increased abdominal distension at birth, bilious vomiting, palpable bowel loops, no passage of meconium, and then you could have associated findings of maybe a volvulus, maybe some intestinal necrosis, perforation, meconium peritonitis. They present like every other baby you're afraid of. They present like the babies who you're afraid of for Hirschsprung. They present like the babies you're afraid of uh, having a neck. Like it's just, um, it's just uh, difficult to tease apart. You will most likely get an x-ray. You'll see a distended intestinal loop with air fluid levels. And what you can see is some granular or bubbly appearance of the meconium. Again, not super um, helpful in terms of teasing it apart from other stuff. If it's uncomplicated, you treat with an enema, the hypertonic barium enema gastrographin, or hypake 
And this is effective because the hyperosmolarity of the enema will draw the fluid in uh, and allows for disimpaction, basically. And uh, we're all super happy when that big meconium plug finally is found in the diaper. That treatment option of doing the contrast study is successful in the majority of cases, that number being 60%. Um, since we're talking about meconium, let me just do meconium peritonitis as well. I'll save you the trouble, Dharma. Are you muted? You're muted. Fine. Okay, that's uh, fine. Good. Um, meconium peritonitis, basically you have a perforation in utero and meconium spills into the peritoneal cavity. That meconium eventually will become hard and will calcify. Usually this is a secondary complication of a meconium ileus, and it also, can also be the result of intestinal atresia, as we've mentioned, volvulus or gastroschisis. Most often it is associated with intestinal obstruction or mesenteric, mesenteric vascular occlusion. So there's several types, <clears throat> and uh, we're going to go through all four of them. So we have meconium pseudocysts, which is basically a wall of fibrous tissue that surrounds the meconium. And um, that usually is a marker of the meconium having been there for a long period of time. You could have adhesive meconium peritonitis, which is widespread, widespread I'm sorry, contamination of the peritoneal cavity days to weeks before birth. So what you'll see on x-ray is this, this, this picture that we described of the scattered calcification seen on abdominal radiograph. Um, you could have vascular adhesion observed with uh, when you're doing your laparotomy, <clears throat> and it's often associated with intestinal obstruction. You could have uh, meconium ascites, which is a perforation only like a few days before birth. You have a large amount of meconium-stained acidic fluid, not acidic like acid, but like ascites, like Beautiful. ascitic fluid. And then you, but because it's happening uh, so close to delivery, you don't really get the calcification. The meconium that has spilled into the abdominal cavity hasn't really had the chance to calcify. And, and so when you do the x-ray, you won't see it, but you may be able to see it if you're doing an ultrasound. I'm maybe getting ahead of myself here, uh, talking about diagnosis and stuff, but anyway. And then finally, the fourth type is infected meconium peritonitis, which is you have an intestinal perforation that does not seal, and it's continuing the allowance of seeding of microorganism into the peritoneal cavity. I've never seen this. This sounds dreadful. Yeah. Well, it's neck, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but isn't that interesting that, I mean, when you think about it, you can have this in utero perforation, stuff spills out there, and nothing nothing bad happens. That's isn't right. That crazy. Well, nothing bad, I don't know. Well, fine. <laughs> but sometimes, sometimes, sometimes nothing sometimes bad happens. Okay. Um, the management is if the perforation has sealed and there's no intestinal obstruction, then you really See? Don't, you don't need to do anything. However, a majority of patients, keyword here, majority, I'm kidding, uh, require surgical intervention for uh, complications like intestinal obstruction, persistent peritonitis and sepsis, uh, some some abdominal mass, abdominal wall cellulitis. Um, yeah. So... Key here is remember to test for cystic fibrosis. Uh -huh. uh, I can see that being an easy question to draft. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. All right, what do you? Uh, all right, the next one is okay. Yeah, go ahead. We're in the large intestine now, um, and then we're starting with this uh, small left colon syndrome or microcolon. Does that make us poop if we're doing this journey? 
at what point do we become the you <laughs> and me? Uh, we gotta go. We gotta take a break. We started as uh, nutritious, uh, nutritionist, nutritious uh, uh, things, and now we're just so. Uh, <laughs> okay, so uh, microcole. I think it's really important to remember this association with uh, maternal diabetes, especially since diabetes is uh, becoming much more common, increasing rates. Um, this is a important association to remember. It's also can be related with uh, maternal hypothyroidism, uh, maternal toxemia, which is this uh, magnesium exposure. Um, it can be seen in prematurity, and it has a rare complication of fecal perforation. So what happens? It's a functional immaturity of the ganglion cells. They're there, but they don't work right. Um, it primarily affects the descending and rectosigmoid colon, and it creates kind of a transient functional obstruction. Clinically, the signs are the same as all everything else we've been talking about. Uh, you know, abdominal distension, um, poor tolerance to feeding, um, and, and frequently in the case of uh, microcolon, there's a failure to pass meconium. If you get an x-ray, because we're getting distal into the uh, intestine here, there are multiple dilated loops of bowel. Um, the barium enema will show a small colon segment with a dilated bowel proximal to the involved segment. And unlike in Hirschsprung's disease, which we're getting to, the rectum is normal. So barium enema is the study of choice. Yeah, I think... Um... Yeah, this is an interesting. This is interesting because it presents exactly like like Hirschsprung's, right? And, right. And then this is the one where you do get your barium, and suddenly you see that like the whole the Goes colon from is big to tiny. Yeah, super <laughs> super tiny. And we'll see what the difference is like when we get to Hirschsprung's. So, um, before we get to, to you, uh, before we get to Hirschsprung's, let's talk about colonic atresia. Mm -hmm. Um, now colonic atresia is often um, it's quite it's quite rare. One in fifteen hundred to twenty thousand births. Uh, so it's, often it's the least, the least common <laughs> intestinal atresia. It's often associated with skeletal anomalies like polydactyly, absent radii, uh, clubfoot. It's also associated with ocular anomalies, congenital heart disease, and the atresia of the colon. That's very. That's that's a, a key factor here. Is often associated is is secondary to vascular compromise. So you have a vascular event and you lose your colon. You will present with bilious vomiting, absent stools. You get an uh, an X-ray. You see multiple large distended loops. You do a barium enema and you see distended proximal bowel and a collapsed rectum with no air. The management is obviously surgical. I think colonic atresia, vascular. It's it's vascular in nature, and then um, 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 remember that the last time we spoke about ischemic sort of injuries, we were talking about jejunal ileal atresia, where the intrauterine ischemic injury is the most common etiology for these as well. So when we're talking about these small intestine, large intestine issues, think really vascular, like. Don't dismiss that on the answer choices. Go ahead. Okay, Hirschsprungs. I'm That's always it. looking for Hirschsprungs. <laughs> it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a very lonely, lonely journey. Uh, sometimes it's hard. Well, to... you know, I think we miss it a lot. 
right? And that's why all these kids are diagnosed in to childhood. I think we. I miss think it. the 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 quest for Hirschsprungs is valid until you start saying, "What if it's small segment Hirschsprungs?" Right? I think when <laughs> when you start, uh, I think usually our nursing staff usually thinks you're the lunatic doc when you start entertaining small segments because <laughs> everything else is normal. It could be anywhere. It could be. Could be anywhere. Um, so it's actually pretty common. One in five thousand births. Um, there is kind of a genetic predisposition. If one child has Hirschsprung's disease, there is a three percent to five percent risk to the next child, and one third of patients with Hirschsprung's have a relative with Hirschsprung's disease. And interestingly, eighty percent of um, infants patients with Hirschsprung's are male. Um, other associations, trisomy 21, heterochromia, Wardenberg syndrome, congenital deafness, 13Q deletion, pheochromocytoma, neurofibromatosis, and neuroblastoma. So if you've got a genetic disorder <laughs> and, and vomiting, you might want to think about Hirschberg's disease. Yeah. Um, and if you remember, this is a failure of complete cranial to caudal migration of the neural crest cells at eight to 10 weeks. So they got started, but they didn't make it all the way down. Um, and basically they, it's aganglionic. So the, I mean, the, the nerve cells are just not there and there's no parasympathetic innervation to the distal colon. This causes abnormal peristalsis leading to functional constipation. So really difficulty with stooling, but same thing, we may have some of these other presentations of emesis, uh, intolerance of feeding. And the pathology, 75 to 80%, only the, rectois, the rectosigmoid is involved. And in 5 to 10%, the complete colon is involved. Um, there's normal proximal intestine, uh, which becomes thickened because of excess stimulation, attempting to overcome distal functional obstruction. I feel like, like this is like gym. a... It's like yeah, going to the exactly gym, you know? Yeah, exactly right. It's right. That's exactly right. It's um, it's it's trying to push out against uh, <laughs> yeah. this obstruction there, yeah. and this creates a transition zone. So it's an area between the end of the normal proximal zone and the beginning of the abnormal distal zone. Um, the hallmark clinical features, which again are not always really seen clinically, is that there's no meconium in the first 24 hours. There's abdominal distension. They can have constipation or foul-smelling liquid liquid stool seepage past the obstruction. They can have bloody diarrhea, failure to thrive. They may have urinary obstruction because of the mechanical obstruction caused by the large colon. They can be complicated by acute bacterial enterocolitis with this translocation of bacteria, which again, clinically presents like neck, rapidly progressive abdominal distension, vomiting, foul-smelling bloody stools, ulceration of intestinal mucosa, necrosis of the bowel wall, and sepsis. And it unfortunately has a 25 to 30% mortality rate. And that's and that's what um, the team and the surgeons usually mention to parents at discharge, which is for babies with Hirschsprung's, like <clears throat> um, this this risk of, um, of infection means that you cannot let your baby not poop for a few days. Like it's not right. like other babies where it's like, oh, my baby hasn't pooped in two days. Like, oh, just watch it. Like those kids... If they don't poop regularly, then you you need to quickly um, work them up. Yeah. So diagnosis. So this is, I think, is important to remember. Like I said, fifty percent are diagnosed by age one month. That means fifty percent are not diagnosed by age one month. So you got a kid at home that's pooping sometimes. 
that pooping these are, all the these time. are the lines that foster <laughs> diana uh, that foster yeah. uh, <laughs> daphna's paranoia that's right i think we miss a lot of her friends um anyways on x-ray so this is the x-ray that finally looks like you know when you were in medical school and they taught you what an abdominal obstruction looks like um so you see large colon um filled uh you know lots of kind of air fluid air fluid levels um but absence of air in the rectum um the barium enema is really used to assess for this transition zone but also it can be diagnostic if there's retention of the barium 24 hours after a study um suggested disease in full-term infants and importantly a negative barium enema does not rule out disease because you may have like ben said a very small segment of um a ganglionic colon then usually a biopsy is needed to detect the absence um, uh, or presence of ganglionic cells by a pattern of acetylcholinesterase staining the differential diagnosis is broad we've told you about all of those things distal ileoatresia colonic atresia baconium ileus um, the barium enema typically reveals a normal or dilated colon sometimes we call it a megacolon so really really distended in contrast to other causes of colonic obstruction which um, demonstrate typically a small or microcolon um, because of where the obstruction is located. So um, management, so uh, depends on where it is and how um, big uh, the aganglionic section is. Um, sometimes a diverting colostomy is needed proximal to the transition zone with definitive treatment at age one to one and a half years or a weight greater than 10 kilograms. Uh -huh. um, sometimes we can get by with um, these daily uh, dilations followed by this laparoscopic pull through of the colon through the anus without the need uh, for colostomy. Um, that's the majority of cases. Um, but again, uh, anticipatory guidance regarding monitoring for signs of enterocolitis and this can um, be associated uh, with abnormal hearing. So hearing screen also necessary. Yeah. Easy way to draft a question for this would be presenting to you the typical kid with Hirschsprung. And then once you're like, oh, it's Hirschsprung, it's Hirschsprung, say, what is the mechanism? And you would have to pick uh -huh. that it's failure of the neural crest migration at uh -huh. PK to 10. Super, super Maybe easy. Have you, been, have you been writing questions with chat GPT? That's what you've been doing? <laughs> <laughs> I've been experimenting. That's right. <laughs> I mean, do you want to go ahead? No, I was going to say, I mean, I would like to be better at writing questions. And so I'm trying to think, I'm trying to <laughs> dissect questions as I'm doing questions, whether it is the mocha, whether it is like the neo reviews, I'm trying to dissect a little bit what makes a good question. What, um, and so I'm, I've been, I've been experimenting. Yeah. All right. You were going to ask something, by the way, for the people who are, people are not seeing this, but just so you know, it's getting dark out. So now <laughs> I cannot, Daphne's screen on the Zoom window, it's getting blacker and blacker. And I feel like a few more minutes you and she'll disappear. Once her, once her screen, <laughs> once her laptop screen goes into a little bit of a... Hibernation. <laughs> yeah, when it, when it starts going to sleep, I'm going to lose her completely. I can barely... <laughs> Do you want to turn the lights on in the, in the room you're in? I will when we're done right. with this one. All right, let me finish then. The last yeah. one we're doing tonight today is meconium plug. Um... Meconium plug, meconium ileus, isn't that the same thing? Remember, we were talking about meconium ileus in the small intestine. This is a functional immaturity of the colon. Okay, so meconium ileus in the ileum, meconium plug in the colon. 
and it and it leads to the delayed passage of meconium, which can cause obstructive symptoms that are transient. The etiology is unknown, though it is thought to be secondary to immaturity of the myenteric plexus nerve cells, um, in um, which which is important, right? Because this is something that we talked about when it came to Hirschsprung. Now, I didn't say that they were absent; I said they were immature. So that's why it's transient. If they were absent, like they are in the distal colon, it would be uh, it would be more like Hirschsprung. Now, the incidence is quite common. It's one in 500 to 1,000 babies. There's increased incidence in mothers who have diabetes, if there's antenatal exposure to magnesium sulfate, or obviously if there's an incidence of uh, cystic fibrosis, though the whole history of a cystic fibrosis, as we said, is more common uh, with, uh, thought to be more common, thought though more common to present with meconium ileus, not plugs. The presentation is usually going to be the one of a, of a transient bowel obstruction where you have abdominal distension, failure to pass meconium, you have some bilious vomiting. Typically, the course is benign. There are some rare but potential complications which are related to electrolyte disturbance. Um, and then you could have intestinal perforation. The differential diagnosis will obviously lead you to all the pathologies that we talked about, like Hirschsprung's disease, ileal atresia, meconium ileus, mobile obstruction, non-obstructive ileus secondary to sepsis or metabolic disorder. You most likely will get an x-ray which showed dilated loops of bowel, but you will not see rectal gas, obviously, because that's where um, that's secondary to this uh, obstruction. The contrast enema will show an empty distal colon, uh, a dilated proximal bowel with uh, filling defect caused by plugs resulting in double contrast effect. You could have um, small left colon syndrome, which is a subset basically of infants with meconium plug syndrome that demonstrate transition zone between the dilated proximal bowel and normal decreased distal colon, typically at the splenic flexure. The management involves abdominal decompression, contrast enemas. You would monitor for your electrolytes. You must <coughs> include Hirschsprung in that differential and you should test for cystic fibrosis. I think we should I think we should just squeeze in and preferring this here. No. I'm tired. My you sushi are? is waiting. Yeah. Okay. Tomorrow. Okay. Fine. See you tomorrow. All right. <laughs> I'm sure people are like, oh thank God Ben. <laughs> I I was the guy who when in class the teacher would say, We're done unless anybody has any questions, I would despise the person who would raise their hands. <laughs> Yeah, Which obviously, yeah. I'm always like, "What question is so important that you couldn't send an email?" Or just like, <laughs> "Let us leave and then go ask your question." But so, <laughs> anyway, I feel like we can do it. All right, no offense to all you hand raisers. <laughs> you probably, you probably asked a question we all needed to know the answer. Listen, to, I've done so. it before. We all love everybody. It's not a big deal. We're just, you know, <laughs> just happy. All right, Dapper, I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.